when Broken Icon greenlit the project, they're like, all right, let's do it. Uh, then it was a great moment. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this graphic novel. But at the same time, I was like, oh, crap, I don't have a script. For many of us, as a kid, thumbing through a comic book could transport us to other worlds, flying through the universe at the speed of light. Watching immortal enemies battling to the death. And some of us never grew out of it. Welcome to the Under the Mask podcast, where we discuss the super process behind superheroes. Not just superheroes, aliens, horror, thrillers. If you can find it on a comics page, you can find it here. Here, you'll learn how to make comics from the initial outlines, scripts, and artwork to printing and putting the final book in a bag and board. For many years, Bill Colomb has written his book, Kinetic, and sold thousands of copies across the nation. And now we're inviting you along for an inside look to the comics process. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you're in the right place. This is the Under the Mask Podcast, and this is Bill Colomb. Under the Mask Podcast, episode 14. All right, you wrote a script, you got an art team together, and you finished your comic book or graphic novel. What now? One of your options is to sign with a publisher, and today we're talking with a creator who did just that. My guest today is the writer and creator of several graphic novels, including Savara and the upcoming projects Monsterly and The Rum Running Queen. His latest work, Monitor, is available at brokeniconcomics.com slash monitor. Listeners of this podcast can get an additional discount by typing the code FBOM at checkout. That's F-B-O-M. And now let's get to my guest today. Damien Wampler. Damien, thank you again for coming on and looking forward to chatting with you, man. All right. Great. Thank you. So first thing I want to ask you, kind of the first thing I ask almost all my guests, who are you? How'd you get to be here today? And tell us a little bit about your story. All right. Great. Well, how I came into comics is kind of a long convoluted story because way back in the day, I was writing plays and I was a photographer and I really didn't have any real interest in writing or creating comics. This was like 10 years ago. I was doing photography. I was living in New York City. Uh, I was writing plays and I had a play produced in Manhattan. And all of a sudden I shifted careers. I ended up living overseas and I found that I couldn't do photography and I couldn't write and produce plays. And so I was like, well, what am I going to do? I've got this great story. I had this great story in my head. And actually I had written a play called Savara. And I was like, what am I going to do with this idea? And then it kind of hit me, you know, some of my childhood memories came back from reading comics as a kid. And I thought, you know what, I could take this play and turn it into a comic book. And so I started, you know, Googling, looking at some different websites. I was on uh, Comics Tribe quite a lot. Jim Zub has a great website about how to make comics. And I kind of absorbed all those and converted my play 
into a comic book. And that was my first graphic novel. And so it's been a great outlet for me because I've got all these stories in my head and I want to get them out. But, you know, I feel like really comics is the best way for me to tell my stories. And so after Savar came out in 2015 by Broken Icon Comics, I started thinking of what my next project is going to be. And I started working a couple more ideas. But talking about how I came to monitor, how it kind of I stumbled onto it or it came into my life, I started watching a lot of documentaries about data. Uh, there was a documentary about big data and the benefits of big data. But then I also watched another documentary about Cambridge Analytics and kind of the dark side of data and the ability to bring information to viewers that will appeal to their personality type. And so I had seen like kind of the good side of big data and the, and the dark side, the evil side of it. And I thought, you know, let me tell a story about this conflict, about how we're moving towards a more and more data-driven world. At some point, we're going to have not just smart watches, we're going to have smart glasses, smart belt buckles, smart shoes, like we're going to have smart everything. It's all going to be trackable. What kind of benefits are we going to get from that? And uh, what are the negatives going to be? Because if you know anything about Cambridge Analytics, there's there's a dark side to this. So I started to tell a story and I just, I really wanted to have fun. I wanted to tell a really fun adventure. Like I, I had the premise, but I didn't want to, you know, preach or hit anybody over the head. Uh, I wanted to just knock it out of the park and uh, and tell this great story. So that's how Monitor came to be. And I was really thankful that Broken Icon Comics took a look at the first eight pages. They liked it and they greenlit the whole graphic novel. So it's out now on their website. So would you say uh, kind of that Cambridge analytics, that was the initial inspiration for Monitor? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a YouTube documentary about it. But then there's also like a half an hour documentary about big data, about the positive sides of big data. I forget what it's called. It's a really short documentary. That's really incredible. Like it shows you how awesome it is to have big data. Like it talks about how like speech recognition if your house is wired up with like these uh, Amazon Echoes or whatever, and it's recognizing speech, it can actually help scientists learn how children learn speech because the, these speakers are sucking in all of the voices that it hears and then loading it into like an AI. And so scientists can plow through all of this data when they have enough of it and do really good things for humanity. So yeah, it was Cambridge Analytics on one side and then this this big data documentary on the other that's very positive. Go ahead and tell us about your story Monitor. So Monitor is about a police officer whose job it is to hunt down people who have disconnected from the server in a futuristic world where everybody is implanted with monitors at birth and disconnecting from the server is a crime. So privacy and protecting your data is a crime and it's punishable by death. So in the story, a police officer gets a call to hunt down and kill one of these disconnects, as they're called. But when he gets to the scene, one of the women who he's supposed to take into custody plants something on him and disconnects him from the server. And so suddenly he's on the run from the same police who were hunting him down. And he goes on this journey, on this adventure, learning what it's like to be disconnected and learning what it's like for the other people who are disconnected. He basically learns the truth about the society that he's living in and the job that he is doing. Uh, his whole life, he wanted to be a police officer. He wanted to hunt down these disconnects and rid society of these anomalies. And he finds out what, what the human price of that is. So Monitor is published by Broken Icon Comics. How did you hook up with them? Yeah, so they're a very small press uh, out of Ohio. They only do horror and sci-fi. And I approached them about five years back with some samples pages from Savara and uh, and the script and the story and they liked it. They had a lot of horror on their plate but they didn't have any 
uh, fantasy. And they, they gave me the chance. What's great about Broken Icon and what's great about being an indie comic writer is that you can experiment and you can you can try new things. You can make mistakes. You can fail. And you don't necessarily have an editor who's going to be, you know, telling you what you have to do. You know, you have to fit into this shared universe. You have to fit into this event. You can just kind of have fun and do whatever you want. So Savara, better for better or for worse, was this blowout epic fantasy adventure that takes place over thousands of thousands of years. I was very ambitious back then. And it was fun for me to learn what works and what doesn't work uh, in making my own graphic novel. And so after Savara, I wrote this eight-page pitch for Monitor. It was the first eight pages of the graphic novel, but I didn't have the graphic novel written at that point. I just had the first eight pages drawn and lettered. And uh, I showed it to Eric at Broken Icon. He liked it. When you see Monitor, you'll see it's very different. It's not black and white, but it's not full color. It's like a, a black and gray with these blue tones. And I showed it to him and he was like, yeah, let's, let's do it for 2021. They've been a great team to work with. Broken Icon's been a really good group of guys to work with because they give just enough editorial guidance. You know, they'll give a little bit of input and say, you know, readers don't like this or marketing wise, this is going to work better. But for the most part, I have a lot of freedom to tell the story that I want to tell and, and uh, to do what I want to do, which is really fun. You know, that's one big thing that separates a small press from going up to the big leagues like Marvel DC. Um, I know a uh, creator, Steve Lieber, we were talking about, he's doing uh, Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen right now with Matt Fraction. Mm -hmm. And I was chatting Mm -hmm. with him and he says, uh, you know, it's so tough working just because it's, it's a fun story, but because it's Superman is related, there's a whole editorial mandate coming down. Whereas doing it uh, independently and I know, and you know, I can do whatever I want, which is kind of nice. Yeah. And you know, when you're starting off in the comics business, you have this dream, like you want to work for Marvel or DC. Like that is the goal, right? That's like the gold standard. You look up at Marvel and DC and you're like, how great would it be to work for Marvel and DC and write, you know, Batman or Superman? I mean, I've got this great Superman comic in my head that I would love to write, right? I'm sure everybody has that one awesome, you know, Wolverine comic or Deadpool comic that they just, they would love to do. But I've been lucky to have become friends with some people who work at Marvel and DC and I've been able to sit with them and chat with them, had coffee with Van Jensen once who worked on The Flash for two years. He had a two-year run of The Flash, uh, written a whole bunch of other great comics, some Green Lantern core for DC. And he was telling me, you know, yeah, it is great to work for Marvel and DC, but when you're working for them, like you said, you're working for somebody else's world. You're working for an editor and an entire, in some cases, you know, almost a hundred years of history of the character. So you can't do whatever you want. But the advice he gave me is he was like, look, when you're doing your own indie comics, you might, that might be a stepping stone to get a job at Marvel and DC and know that when you work for one of the big two, you're not going to have that creative freedom. So he said, when you're making an indie comic, just blow it out. Like all the experimental stuff, all the fun stuff, all the crazy stuff that you could never do in a Marvel or DC title, put it in your book. That's your chance. You might, you know, I might get a call and DC says, we want you to write Superman for two years. Well, there goes my chance to do any sort of the fun experimental stuff that I like to do. So take advantage of the time you have in indie comics and make do the best that you can, but put all the creativity and all the cool ideas into it because you're not going to get that shot when you're when you're doing indie comics. So if you know Van Jensen, he did one issue of Six Million Dollar Man, and the issue it's I think it's number twenty two. It's in the in the arc called Fall of Man, and that comic, twenty two page comic, is believe it or not, it's only one panel. It's a fight on a train, and it's one giant panel. You just keep flipping the pages, and he's still on the train, and he's still chasing the bad guy through the train. And 
and it's one super long panel. You could cut the comic apart and fold it out and it would be this one long 22 page panel. It's absolutely awesome uh, that he could do that with dynamite. A dynamite's small enough that, you know, you he could have that freedom and he could have fun. But then when you get to doing something like Flash where you're going to have some big event coming up and you've got a hundred years of the history of that character. Yeah, you, you can't do what you want. So when you read Monitor, you'll see I try to do some creative stuff. The ending, I, I just did this big blowout ending and made it spectacular. I didn't economize at all on, on room or anything. But there are a couple of things throughout the comic where I just knew you know I wouldn't be able to do this if I worked for a big publisher. Yeah, I like to call it uh, playing in someone else's sandbox. Uh, I was collaborating with a group of guys on a, a comic and then you know they had the entire vision in their head. They had like a thousand year history in their head, an alternate timeline of Earth. And I just, you know, I submitted my ideas, but they didn't like that story. So they didn't go with it. So yeah, you, you don't have freedom when you're playing in somebody else's sandbox. Yeah, there's always uh, editorial coming down on you and the art team. And speaking yeah. of the art team, how did you find the art team for Monitor? Yeah, so uh, in my job, I travel all over the world. I've lived in Pakistan, I lived in Zimbabwe. Uh, right now I live in Russia. But my last job, uh, I was posted to the Republic of Georgia. I was living in Tbilisi and I met a whole bunch of artists there. I started to become friends with the art community. And uh, right when I left, I met this amazing young artist named Elizabeth. She's extremely talented and she's also really hardworking. She has, she, she showed me her portfolio. She had drawn and lettered an entire comic. And I said, well, where are you going to get this published? And she's like, oh, nowhere. I don't have any plans. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? You drew this whole thing. You don't have a plan to distribute it. She's like, no. I just, I just drew it. So she's the kind of person, she's very driven. She really loves to draw. It, even if she's not getting paid, she's going to be drawing. You pay her, she's going to be drawing. She's totally dedicated. And so we started working on Monitor together. And it was, it's been a great collaboration because we can communicate with each other very openly. She would actually ask me questions about where the story is going or you know why is that character reacting that way to the situation. And I'd write back. And sometimes I would actually, in writing Monitor, sometimes I would actually change the story based on her perspective. So it's been a true collaboration working on Monitor. We love working together. So we're actually working on another graphic novel that I'll tell you about later. But when you read Monitor, you're going to see the color is like really the superstar of this book because it's so unique. And so I went on to Facebook forums and DeviantArt looking for colorists. And I actually asked a bunch of people to send me color samples, which I don't I don't usually ask for a test page when I'm doing a project because most of the time the color is just, you know, all right, just color is important, but it's not usually so important that you, you do test pages. But in this case, I sent out the first page of Monitor to a couple different colors. And I, I told them I wanted to do a two-tone comic, black and white with, with one extra color. And most people do red, like that's pretty common, right? A black and white comic with like the blood is red. Uh, but I told them they could do whatever color they wanted as the tone. Most people, most of the colors went through and they took each panel and they put like one blue element. Like, you know, if there's a gun, they made the gun blue. If there was a window, they made the window blue. So it was like a black and white comic with one colored element. And that's actually what I would do also. If I were a colorist and I was told to do two-tone, that would be my method. I would be like, okay, let's make it black and white and put one blue thing in each panel. But actually that's really distracting because your eye goes to this blue thing and you see your eye is going around from blue thing to blue thing and it's, it actually doesn't work well. 
But there was one artist from Poland. Uh, his name is Lukasz. And he sent me this really beautiful page where it was like black and white, but uh, a bluish gray tone that was added. And sometimes he outlines the characters in a blue line. And he's the only colorist who did not color the window blue. Uh, there's a window in the background on the, on the first panel that's shaped like an X. And it's just so tempting to just color that. But it was a window. Light was coming in, so he left it white. And he really knocked it out of the park. So he did the color for the whole book, uh, almost the whole book, and added texture. And it really it really makes the book shine. Yeah, it's uh, so important having collaborators. And that's really what the art team is, is they're collaborators. At least that's the way I like to look at my art team. They add so much to the book. What happens when I write is I tend to kind of overwrite the script and micromanage in the beginning. You know, as we're getting comfortable with each other, I'll write really long panel descriptions. But as the book goes on and the artist gets more comfortable with the world and I get more comfortable with the artist, I just let him go. And by the end of the script, some panels would just barely have any description. It would just be like, Eric jumps, you know? And I let her choose the angle and and, uh, create the flow of the page. Uh, And that's a really great place to get to in a relationship every now and then I'll say, Hey, they fight for two pages. Cause I think it's mm-hmm. nice to let the artist off the leash and just say, Hey, just go do it. Make it awesome. Yeah. They got to have fun. And like you said, when they make their decisions, they they're usually for the better because they're the ones who are controlling where your eye goes on the page. And so when they change the angle or, or, or change a perspective, they they're usually making the right choice. So I definitely defer to the artist and yeah, it, it's just fun to let them loose and, and uh, let the artist have fun. So what was your writing process like for Monica? Yeah, this was a bit interesting because what I did is I changed my strategy after Savara, where I had pushed really hard to get a a graphic novel or an ongoing series. I changed my strategy and I created the first eight pages as a self-contained mini adventure where even if I I never got a whole graphic novel, the first eight pages would be enough. It's the self-encapsulated mini adventure. I sent that, those eight pages around to publishers, but I also sent those eight pages around to some anthologies because, you know, it's a perfect size to put in an anthology and uh, Monitor was included in an anthology called Elsewhere. And so it got accepted to Elsewhere. We did a Kickstarter for it. We raised uh, enough money to print and ship the books and it was great. And so I was happy. I was like, all right, Monitor is out there in the world. And I started looking at other projects. So I I didn't have the entire story written. I had the first eight pages of art and I had a like a two page synopsis for Monitor, but I didn't have like a page by page breakdown. I did not have a full screen. I just knew that this cop was going to get pulled into the world of the disconnects. He was going to get involved in intrigue. I knew that I was going to play on the film noir stereotypes and tropes, the film noir trope. So there's going to be a blonde, there's going to be a brunette, there's going to be a plot that's way bigger than this ex-cop can comprehend. Everyone's going to betray each other and uh, and then it's going to end. So I, I had the basic elements, but I didn't know exactly how it was going to happen. So when Broken Icon greenlit the project, they're like, all right, let's do it. Uh, then it was, it was both, it was a great moment. I was like, yeah, I had to do this graphic novel. But at the same time, I was like, oh crap, I don't have a script. So I started writing it and I would, I wrote the initial, I wrote like the first half of it and then sent it to the artist. So the artist is working on the first half, but the second half of the script is not finished, which is both good and bad. You know, it is wonderful to have a completed script so that you can go back and tinker with things and change things. But um, we didn't have the time, you know, I wanted to have her start working on it and get 
get this book out. But it was good that I didn't have it all written because at a certain point, uh, Elizabeth, she messaged me on Facebook and she's like, you know what? This character doesn't seem angry enough at this other character. You know, like there's just been through this traumatic situation. Why isn't, why isn't she angry? Why isn't she madder? And I thought about that and actually used that, her insight to change the way the story flowed. And it actually ended up changing the kind of the whole ending. So the writing process was very free form because I didn't have the ending in mind. I let the characters drive the story. So there are a lot of points where characters have to make decisions and I let the character make the decision. I didn't push them in any one unnatural direction, which I also, I think it benefits the book because there are points where in a Hollywood movie, you know, there's always this evil character who suddenly realizes the error of their ways and like joins the good guys, right? And like you've seen it a million times and it's not always realistic. It's not always in the character's personality to suddenly switch and become a good guy. So when I was writing it, I, every time I got to one of those points where I was like, this is in the outline, this is where, you know, Eric goes from being a bad guy to a good guy. I, I resisted. I was like, you know what? He hasn't actually seen enough to warrant that. So I didn't let it happen. I didn't let it happen. And I stretched and I held on to it as long as possible. So I, this form of storytelling it's kind of like the way you would write a comic if you had a monthly series where you didn't know how it was going to end, but told in, in a graphic novel form, which was fun. You know, it was a challenge. Speaking of challenges, what were the biggest challenges or obstacles that you had to overcome? There were a lot of challenges. I think what was good is that I made so many mistakes when I made Savara. I was able to change everything and my whole approach to making a comic and a graphic novel because of Savara. So a couple of things that I did were rule number one, make sure that the entire concept of your comic can be seen in the title and the log line or the, the tagline. So I made a very simple title monitor, like boom, it's about monitoring people. Very straightforward. You know, make sure you find an artist who's cheap and fast and reliable uh, because I, that was a challenge that I've run into. Anybody who's done indie comics knows that you can have artists who just disappear, who stop working. And you know, you don't make a lot of money out of comics. So you, you've got to find somebody who's very talented, works very quickly and also is not going to disappear on you. So I think the challenges were really putting together a good team because I've had teams fall apart. Monitor is not supposed to be my second graphic novel. My second graphic novel is supposed to be The Rum Running Queen, which is actually going to come out next year. But my team fell apart. You know, I had an artist who was working on it and then suddenly there were issues, personal issues, financial issues, and the artist disappeared and it took a long time to find one. So I think the hardest part was finding a reliable team. It's horrible to have like 10 pages, 20 pages, half of a comic book drawn and then your artist disappears. Maybe they got a, a better job working for somebody else maybe they have personal issues but that's just a huge risk in indie comics to reality and then the other challenge is getting people to read it because there's a huge gap between my first graphic novel and monitor i don't have a fan base I'm in Russia right now. So I not only can I not go to all, any of the conventions, but with COVID-19 right now, everything shut down. You know, we, we had a table at San Diego Comic-Con, which I was really excited about. I was planning to fly to California and, and meet up with a bunch of friends of mine and kind of make the rounds. And that didn't happen. So it's been tough because I love the story. I want people to read it. But, you know, how do you market in this environment when I've got like no followers on Facebook or Instagram? So um, I'm just starting out and trying to get my name out there and trying to get people excited about 
uh, Monitor. And I can promise you that if you like Monitor, uh, there's going to be fun, interesting stories coming from me in the future because I got a bunch of other stuff lined up. Yeah, I think that's one of the toughest parts in independent comics, even without COVID-19 totally decimating 2020. Building up your fan base is very, very tough to do. The whole comics environment just changed. It changes so quickly, but it changes so quickly. Like 10 years ago, how many indie publishers were there and how many people were making indie comics and putting them, you know, online, you know, comicsology submit didn't exist, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, boom, there's so many talented people, so many people making great stories and it's hard to catch attention. And there's still a ton of bloggers and websites. I mean, there's tons of comic websites and review sites and podcasts. So there's just a ton of white noise. And I think Monitor is a very specific thing. I don't pretend that everyone's going to like it. Monitor is very dark. There's a lot of technology. It's extremely violent. It's basically a body horror. So not everybody's going to like it. I'm okay with that. I'm just trying to find the people who will like it. You know, who likes a dark, fast-paced, gritty sci-fi that also has a lot of philosophical elements. You know, you just got to find those people. And it's hard because there's, you know, nowadays there's all these Instagrammers, YouTubers, there's TikTok. And every day there's some new app. You know, my son's got Discord and I'm like, I can't even figure out how to get that to work. So yeah, there's just the, the, the environment's changing all the time. You know, it's not like I need to have a million readers, but I would love to have the people who would appreciate the story to be able to read it. What's next for Monitor? Have you got a sequel? And uh, what other projects are you working on down the pipeline? Yeah, so a sequel for Monitor, it would be very easy to do on the one hand, because the world I've created is big enough that there's room to grow, there's places to go. Uh, and Elizabeth is really dedicated to the story and the concept. And so I think I could bring the band back together pretty easily and, uh, and do Monitor. So if people read it, if, you know, if people order it and they like it, then I'll, I'll consider doing a second one. The challenge with any sequel is that uh, I think it's actually easier to write a self-contained story with a clear beginning, middle and end than a sequel. It's funny because I wrote Monitor as an eight page story. So on page eight, there's like a pretty definitive ending. And then when you read the graphic novel, the whole graphic novel is actually kind of a retelling of that short eight page story, like the, the whole running escape. It's like the graphic novel is just an expanded, more in-depth version of that. So if I make a sequel, I have to know where it's going to end. I have to know where that endpoint is and how to tie it all together in a satisfying way. It's just going to take a lot of brain power. I think it'll be harder to write the sequel than it will be to write the first one because I hadn't planned on it. So, you know, if a ton of people read Monitor, I'll, I'll do another one, but I'm going to have to go, I'm going to have to like disappear into some, you know, Buddhist cave and meditate on, on where I want this story to go. Not only is... Uh, is it hard to continue the story with these characters? But actually the world is changing. Even the concept of being monitored and big data is changing. Like right now in the States, there are people who are finding ways to resist facial recognition, which really wasn't a thing when I was writing Monitor. There are people who are selling these like nylon masks that can fool the facial recognition. There are apps. I just read there's an app that will blot out your face and blur your face in real time. So if you want to post something on social media, but not show your face, you can do it. But then if your phone ever gets discovered, there is no like original copy of that image with your face on it. Like the app like doesn't even capture your real face. So there are already people resisting. So I would need to integrate what's happening right now into the next story. So that's challenging, but I've got two other things in the pipeline right now. So the Rum Running Queen, which was the second script that I wrote is now in production. I got a really good team of guys from Indonesia working on this story. 
it's about a young female race car driver and a moonshine runner. She's a bootlegger. She runs moonshine from Franklin County, Virginia to Washington, D.C. to the Capitol. Uh, and she gets pulled into a plot basically to hijack the United States at the hands of famous gangsters like Al Capone. Uh, so it's a really fun adventure, action-packed noir thriller, kind of like Monitor. It deals with important issues. It deals with people resisting taxes and resisting government authority. So that's coming out next year. We're about a third of the way there, but my art team is awesome. Uh, they kind of combine European, Western, and manga style all into this kind of really fun, fast-paced style. So Rum Running Queen's coming out next year through Broken Icon Comics, but I think the big news is that Elizabeth and I are working on another graphic novel. We just signed a contract. Elizabeth right now is working on this 100-page, 100 150-page graphic novel called Monster League. So that is coming out probably next year also. So the publisher is Marcosia. It's a UK publisher. And really, I'm super excited about this story. Monsterly is a it's a fantasy drama that takes issues of racism that are happening in the headlines right now and puts them into a very relatable setting. It's about a, a nuclear family, a, you know, mother, father, two kids who are half human, half monster. And they're living in this world where monsters and humans coexist. And there's a lot of anti-monster racism. My writing style is evolving. And so I'm taking all the lessons that I learned from Monitor all the mistakes I made and put it into this drama that I, I think is really gripping. It's it's a really intense, slow burn. Characters have to make really hard decisions. And the, the story of Monsterly is that I wrote a script and submitted it to an anthology. And the, so this 10-page story, Monsterly, became part of a really great anthology about race and about identity called the Guan Anthology by Forward Comics. And so Elizabeth drew and colored uh, this 10-page story. It got into the Guan Anthology number two. Uh, and I was really happy with the way it turned out. Um, my method for Monsterly was no captions, no flashbacks, just tell a story in the moment and make characters make really hard life or death decisions and then show the aftermaths of those decisions. And so after I finished the 10-page story, basically I had a pitch because I, I had an outline for the whole family drama and the saga that ensues with this family, the Redcliffe family. And so I started pitching it around. I sent a whole bunch of emails out to other to publishers. And actually, amazingly enough, I had three publishers who were interested in, in Monsterly. What's kind of weird is that the email from Harry Marcos at Marcosia went to my spam box. So I just, I don't know, I was sitting looking at my phone one day and I was like, you know what, let me check my spam because I sent out like a whole bunch of, uh, I sent out a whole bunch of query letters and pitches for Monsterly. Maybe, and I was just very wishful thinking, right? Like maybe somebody's interested in it. I look at my spam box and uh, there's an email from Marcosia saying that they're interested. So I just signed up with their team. Very excited about that. Elizabeth has the full script and uh, she is off to the races drawing it. What's great about this partnership between Elizabeth and I is that like Elizabeth is super invested in the story. I don't know about you and your experience, but most of the time when I send my scripts to artists, they don't really care about the world or the characters. They don't care if the characters live or die. Most of my artists and colors don't read the full script to the end. They draw it one page at a time. And if I kill off a character, you know, or if a character gets hurt, I don't get an email you know, at three in the morning, or I don't get a text like, hey, Damien, why, you know, why did you kill that character? Um, with Elizabeth and Monsterly, it's different because I don't know, 
I, I hope that people have the same reaction when they read it, but this family is very relatable. I fell in love with this family writing them and I think the readers will too. And so Elizabeth will message me. She's like, oh my God, are, you know, is that really happening? Like, are there really riots? Like, is that person really in jail? And so she wants to know what's going to happen. She wanted to know how the story ends, which I think is great. I think it's a great sign uh, that she's totally on board with this story. And so I hope I hope people like it. You can actually read the story on the first 10 pages on Webtoon. Uh, I don't know if you read Webtoons. Most of the stuff on there is like uh, is like manga and Japanese uh, and Korean style comics. But uh, I uploaded the first 10 pages of Monsterly as a, as a scrolling comic. So you can read it there and you can see those 10 pages in the Guan Anthology also. But next year, uh, Monsterly is going to come out. So next year, you'll be able to read Monsterly and Run Running Queen, two very, very different stories. But um, what I do with all of my stories is I try to take what's happening in the real world, the real issues, and then I try to make it entertaining. Like I try to package it in a way that people will relate, will empathize kind of the, the real world issues and put them into a human that a reader can really connect with. And you said uh, writing these new projects, you tried to uh, fix a lot of the mistakes that you made in the past. Uh, what were the biggest mistakes that you made? I approached Savara as an epic 20 issue graphic novel, 50 issue ongoing series. You know, I pitched it to different publishers like this is an ongoing series. And the story of Savara is about this immortal goddess who when she dies, she comes back to life being born into another body. And she's lived thousands of lifetimes. And so she's seen technology rise and fall. So the story takes place in both like a fantasy setting, medieval setting, but also futuristic setting with robots. So it's like all over the place. And because the story is so sprawling, there are flashbacks, inside flashbacks, inside flashbacks. And it's just, it's a mess. It's super complicated. Uh, when I made Monitor, I was determined to make it less complicated. But, you know, those of you who have read it know that there's a lot of double crossing. There's a, Every character has its own, has their own goal. When you get to the end of Monitor, you might not know what the truth is. <laughs> um, you might not really know what the truth is. And so as much as I tried to simplify it, it still got complicated and I still had a lot of captions. Not the captions are bad, but as I develop as a writer, uh, I want to focus more on the characters and the characters' decisions and focus more on the dialogue, like back from my days writing plays, focus more on what the characters are saying, because oftentimes they're not saying what they mean. There are double meanings or there's hidden meanings. And with Monsterly, I wanted there to be a really, really simple story. And same with Rum Running Queen. Rum Running Queen doesn't have any flashbacks uh, and Monsterly only has one or two panels that are flashbacks. So I think that was my big thing. Try to cut down on the captions, try to cut down on the flashbacks and tell really straightforward stories that you can like dig into and be there in the moment. I think if you're an art, if you're a writer, you usually want to write like the next Watchmen, the next saga, then you want to write, you, you're, everyone's dream is to write like the next 100 page epic. Everyone wants to make like the next Star Wars, right? And I understand that that's exactly where I was 10 years ago. And what happened to me a couple years ago was I said, you know what, I don't want to write like the next sprawling epic. I want to write the next great eight page story. Like I want to make an eight pages that just totally makes you fall in love with the character. And then we shatter that character's world. And then there's action, adventure, all in eight pages. And with Monster, the, the initial script was 10 pages. And I was like, if you can't tell a great story, story in 10 pages, then why are you writing to a publisher and, and telling them you've got an idea for this 100 page epic? Like you got to be able to knock it out of the park in just eight or 10. And even like 
you should be able to write like a compelling one page story, right? Like every once in a while, I see anthologies of one page comics. And I mean, it's really fun to go through and read them because you just see some brilliant stuff, like great storytelling told in one page. And it's like, all right, you've got to go back to basics and be able to tell a great one page before you can then write a great 20 pages before you can write a great 100. You know, like going back and reading Sandman, which is like, you know, 50, 60 issues. What's great about Sandman is that each single issue is like one compelling, amazing story. Even if it's part of a broader tapestry, like each single issue is fantastic. And sometimes there are four or six issue arcs, but like each, there are some where it's just one issue is just its own thing. Um, And some parts of Sandman, like one issue is just uh, the Sandman invites people to his house. And like the whole issue is just like him inviting people to dream, you know, like that's the whole issue. So it's, you don't, it doesn't, everything doesn't have to be epic, right? Everything doesn't have to be massive. Uh, with tons of worlds, actually, sometimes it's better to be to be small and let the world build itself. So that's what I learned. Think small, start small, try to tell something compelling in a short space. Because if you can, if you can write an eight page story and pitch it to an anthology, and the anthology likes it and they accept it, maybe readers are going to like it, and then maybe somebody's going to want to make a, a four issue miniseries out of it, or make a or make a graphic novel out of it. If you write an eight-page story and pitch it to anthologies and nobody accepts it, then maybe you need to go back to the drawing board and rethink what your storytelling style is and find something that works. So yeah, you'll see if you when you get your hands on Monitor. Now that I'm reading a ton of comics and writing comics at the same time, I enjoy captions less and less. I used to love them. Now I really dislike them. Um, I just read the graphic novel adaptation of Parker. I don't know if you know this. It's like a film noir thriller. It's like a I don't, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with it, but okay. And like the first like 10 or 15 pages, not only are there no captions, there's no words. It's just visuals, just action. It's just sequential art storytelling uh, with pictures, which is like the fundamentals. And that's a good exercise too. to just try to tell the story with no captions and no word balloons at all. Um, And Warren Ellis is really good at this. You know, he'll go pages and pages without any captions or dialogue. Just, you know, James Bond chasing a guy and killing him. It's great. It's really great. We talked about your mistakes. We talked about some obstacles. Damien, just close your eyes for just a moment. Think back and just meditate on your career. What has been the best moment in your career so far? I think, yeah, it's funny because I always said like the day that I signed Monitor with a publisher, I'm going to buy a box of cigars. And then that day happened and I was like, you know what? I'll buy a box of cigars the day that it gets published. (laughs) And then it got published and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to buy that box of cigars yet. Like I didn't feel the real elation. uh, You know, I didn't feel it was the moment to celebrate. So I think right now the the greatest moment maybe is seeing my first graphic novel, like holding my first graphic novel in my hand, uh, holding Savar in my hand for the first time. So I think that was at Tricon, which is in Huntington. Uh, Every year, Broken Icon Comics was running it and uh, I rented a car and drove out there, met up with all the guys at Broken Icon Comics and, you know, I opened the box and there's Savara, which uh, was a labor of love. I think it took me three years or something to finish it. It was extremely expensive. It was was just extremely stressful to put it together. I hand-selected the artist. I hand-selected the cover art. I actually colored the cover, created the logo. And so I think the greatest moment was just holding that first graphic novel in my hands. 
I'm really looking forward to 2021 to have Monster Lee, Rum Running Queen, and Monitor all out at the same time. Yeah, I think it's that first that first moment having something physical in your hands, in my hands. Yeah, that, that's awesome, man. That's a uh, it's a feeling I don't think diminishes as you get yeah. more and more issues in your hand the first time you feel one. But it's yeah. always special that first one that you say, "Okay, I made this." Right. It's not like I had made the big time. It's not like I made any money, but I was somewhere. I had taken that first step. What was the best advice that you received? I think the one thing I already mentioned was Van Jensen telling me, you know, just treat indie comics as like your your time to experiment and have fun. I'll tell you this one. So through my job, uh, I've met a lot of comic creators. I met Van Jensen, uh, met up with David Mack many times. Been fascinating to watch him draw and be a part of his master classes. But not long ago, I met Craig Thompson, Eisner Warwitting graphic novel creator. He writes and draws his own books. I would love to be able to draw. I think if, I, if I'm on lockdown for a few more months, I probably will start drawing my own comics. But what Craig urged me to do is to be more autobiographical in my story. So if you're familiar with Craig Thompson, his big breakout graphic novel is called Blankets. And it really began the whole trend of autobiographical graphic novels. So Blankets is about Craig growing up and falling in love, falling out of love, growing up in the Midwest. And it's, you know, it's a story from his from real life. It's very intimate. It's very honest and touching. And so I met him just before Monsterly. And I think Monsterly wouldn't have happened if I had met him and had him give me that advice. He had given this advice to some other creators that like, you know, stop making superhero comics, stop doing stuff about assassins and superpowers. For him, the real thrill is to be able to tell a real story. He's working on an autobiographical series right now called Ginseng Roots because him growing up in the Midwest, he was on a ginseng farm. He was like farming ginseng uh, as a kid. It's about him and uh, his family. And so I think that played a huge role in Monsterly. Uh, Monsterly is extremely autobiographical. Uh, it's it's very brutally honest about my life, my relationship with my wife and my relationship with my son and like my struggles as a father. And I'm really glad that he encouraged me to dig deeper into myself because, you know, Savar is a fantasy. It encompasses all many things that I learned living in different countries. Uh, Savara is like this collection of all these different stories that I've seen, you know, living in the 10 different countries that I've lived in. Monitor is about contemporary issues issues of surveillance uh, and privacy and data. Uh, Rum Running Queen is about resistance to government authority, but none of them, uh, they're all about ideas, right? They're, they're not about me. They're about stuff that I've seen, not necessarily stuff that I'm dealing with myself. Um, you know, here in Russia, yeah, I am being monitored, but that's that's not like the core of the graphic novel. But Monsterly is really about like me and my family. Um, you know, there are parts of the text that are straight out of conversations I've had with my wife or my son. I think it's a better book for it. I think the more that I dig into myself, the better the story is. And it's great to be able to work on this independently. If DC called me up and said, you know, we want you to write a couple issues of Superman. Yeah, I would totally do it. <laughs> but I don't think there wouldn't be as many autobiographical elements I mean, any story that you tell has to have a human root, has a, have a human core. So if I'm going to write Superman, I'm going to put as much of myself in it as I can. But there are these limits. There's the restraints. Uh, but with Monsterly, like, it's a lot to do with my life. So I'm glad I got that advice. Use your own experiences as the core energy of your stories. Use your own life as the raw building blocks. Use your own emotions to drive your story forward. You're going to have a, you're going to make better 
stories. Even if it's a superhero story, uh, your own experiences are going to really benefit your art. Well, excited to check out Monsterly when it comes out in 2021. And Monitor is available right now at brokeniconcomics.com slash monitor. Damien, where else can we find you online? Yeah, so I have my own website, DamienWampler.com. I've got a Facebook page. I've got Instagram. But I think following my Facebook page is the best way to find me. I've got a message from Broken Icon Comics. They have a promo code that they wanted me to share with you. So if you're interested in getting the print copy of Monitor, you go to the Broken Icon Comics website. They've got a store. There's a space for a promo code. Just put in F-bomb. F-B-O-M-B. They created this promo code F-Bomb. Uh, you can drop that in there and save money on the print copy of Monitor. And uh, what is your Facebook page? Damien Wampler Comics Writing and News. Yeah, if you do a search for Damien Wampler Comics. And we'll be sure to put that link down in the description and in the show notes as well. Are you on any other social medias? Uh, I am on YouTube and I'm pretty thrilled that I have a thousand followers on YouTube. So uh, I've got a background in photography. I was a photographer for many years. I've got some photos in the Brooklyn Museum. One of my strengths, one of my skills and talents is Photoshop. So a couple of years back, I started doing a whole bunch of tutorials about Photoshop and using Photoshop to animate comics, to make trailers, to make animations. Uh, so I got a thousand followers. So definitely follow me on YouTube because I do tutorials about the comic making process pretty regularly. And you'll always see stuff from my uh, most recent project. Guys, thank you so much for listening. You heard him. Get yourself to brokeniconcomics.com slash monitor. Use the promo code FBOMB to get yourself a nice discount off the monitor graphic novel. And be sure to check out Damian Wampler at his website and also on social media. Damian, thank you so much for coming out and chatting with me. Hey, thank you. It was a real pleasure. If you know a creator that makes comic books or any other media and think they'd be a good fit for the show, drop us a line at underthemaskshow at gmail.com. You've been listening to the Under the Mask podcast with Bill Colomb. Welcome to the family. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you've found the right podcast for you. Thanks for listening, and make sure to like or leave a review, and we'd appreciate it if you'd tell a friend or two. To reach out, visit us at underthemaskpodcast.com. This has been a presentation of Y Comics. Till next time, this is the Under the Mask Podcast, signing off.